Uh, good morning, everybody, uh, and thank you for uh, giving me the privilege to uh, speak. It is always a privilege to speak. Um, it, is, it is not always easy to do. Um, and today is going to be a, um, an interesting one. I might just move my screen so you can't see Pilcher the cat quite as much as, he, as he, oh, he's still there and he's sitting on top of my head. I'll have to move him. Hold on a second. It's very hard to take the preacher seriously when Pilcher the cat is sitting on top of his head. So Pilcher can go back later. Um, I'm going to do an experiment this morning, and, and the, the experiment is to is to is to uh, come at this uh, Habakkuk three from a from a completely different perspective to, than the one that you would expect me to, uh, and in fact from the one I would expect me to. So that's why it's a little bit um, interesting. Um, this is a prophetic book, uh, and the prophetic books of the Bible need to be need to be approached in, a, in at least three ways. Um, definitely more, but definitely not less than three. The first thing they have to be is they have to they have to be allowed to be history. They have to be allowed to function in the time in which they were laid down, in the time in which the, the writers were inspired, in the in the events that were going on. This is this is the stuff of human beings. We are all stories and songs. That is all that we are, and we have to be able to lay our story down at the right point. And, and Habakkuk certainly does that. But in order for it to be prophecy, it has to be revelation. It has to reveal who God is. It can't do anything else except that. Um, and so, in a sense, it transcends its own history because it reveals who God is and how God acts in history and how God acts, therefore, in the life of the recipient. And that third aspect is that it has to be spirituality. The, the, the reason we're talking about Habakkuk today on whatever it is of November 2020 is because he still matters. Uh, and the reason that he still matters is because um, prophecy is always spirituality. It always speaks to the spirit within a person. Um, and those who know God, those who love God, want to hear the stories and the songs of God permeate their person. Um, but the, for me, the, I'm going to share my screen with you, which means I have to get up, get right up close, but um, we'll cope with that. Because I think that you... you He poses whilst he uses technology. Right, can somebody wave to me to say that you can see that slide? Super right. I've got a little thing. If you're um, a technology person, you might want to shut down the little photo strip of people at the side so that um, it doesn't cover up the words because there are some words on this. There was, there was a fundamental difficulty with books like Habakkuk. There's a fundamental dif difficulty with every uh, prophecy book in the Bible, which is that it, that it has been written at a particular time and it has been written for a particular reason. And we cannot ignore that and still say that we understand it, still say that we encounter God through it. And one of the big difficulties in dealing with um, the history part of any, anything, whether it's Habakkuk 3 or, or anywhere else. All right. So that same book, what is that same book? Oh, I'm going to have to manipulate my slides physically in the Zoom. That's a pain. It means I'll have to zoom in and zoom out all the time, but never mind. Is that the history part of the Bible, I think we'll all agree, is, is actually never interesting. Um, you know, we're talking thousands of years ago, thousands of years ago, we're talking about kings and nations and, and stuff, and it's all terribly confusing, but it's, but it's never very interesting. Um, and that's potentially a, difficult, a difficulty for us because... How do we understand it if it's never interesting? And I thought, well, I could think of some, some funky ways to show it to you, and that, that would make it um, much, much more interesting. Then I realized that it won't work. Um, the history bit's never interesting. Um, 
But what I thought I would do was just sit in that fact with you this morning. So I'm going to give you a presentation that contains 14, count them, 14 ways to continue to make sure that the history bit of the Bible is never interesting. And yet if we don't go here, if we don't get into this context, we'll never understand where Habakkuk is coming from and we'll never understand what he really means. Um, so number one, how to make, how to keep the history uninteresting. Always put up a Bible timeline where the dates run backwards. I don't know if, if this bakes your head as much as it bakes my head. It always bakes my head that we run with the BC calendar where we count down and then the AD calendar where we, where we count up. I just can never work out that 700, uh, 700 BC is, is not further on in time than 600 BC, which is, which is actually further on in time than 700 BC. It always blows my mind. And so you've got this 450, 500 year period that into which um, Habakkuk speaks um, and you've got these four, roughly four empires um, who exist at that time. So number two, oh, I'm really going to have to use the arrows. Right, number two, um, always add the classic confusion that Israel and Judah are actually different things. So when uh, Solomon dies, um, Israel and Judah cannot decide who's going to be king. Um, and so they have a big fight about it and they decide that no one's going to be king. They're going to have their own king. So now we've got two nations, one in the north, one in the south, both running in parallel, both with different kings both with different stories, both with different relationships with these, these uh, superpowers that, were, that are, the, that are the, the geopolitical context for their existence, and both with different prophets sort of speaking into them. And what the Bible does is very pleasingly just throws all the stories together in one space. So we never quite, we never quite follow what's going on. Also, most people seem to be called Jeff. You know, there's always a Jehoiakim, a Jehoiakim, a Jehoiachin. They just change one letter in the name. And it makes it incredibly difficult to understand uh, what is going on? And yet Habakkuk is in this in this progression of history where there are now two kingdoms and one of them is called Israel and one of them is called Judah. And both of them are going to fall, but they fall at different times. So um, what we do is that we then, in order to make this really boring history lesson even more boring, is we put in the, the prophets where we think they belong. Now, actually, we don't know for sure that they belong there because there's lots of debate about this. And anyway, we never, as Christians, we never think about the prophecy books in terms of their position in history. It's always a, a crowbar to fit, fit those in. But Habakkuk probably sits between Jeremiah and Isaiah in terms of what's, what they're speaking about. And he probably overlaps with Daniel. Number four, just when all that stuff gets interesting, switch to a really boring map and say it is really interesting. So look at this. Isn't it really interesting? You can see the Red Sea where they crossed when they left Egypt. You can, you can, you know... You can talk about the joy of cartography all you like. All that happens is people glaze over. To stop them glazing over, number five, add patronizing arrows to show how this map is and the use of it is going to help you keep help people keep up with you, even though they've lost the plot already. Number six, begin therefore with sweeping generalizations. So the Assyrians had dominated for some time. It's just a sweeping generalization, it doesn't actually tell you what's gen gen genuinely going on. Power rose about, you know, why do you care? 884 to 859 BC with Ashurbanipal and his son uh, Shalmaneser II um, confirmed the, the, the dominance of, of Assyria. 6.5, always tomb raid the British Museum and make sure that everyone understands that there, there, there are statues that show us that this has really happened because statues are always really interesting. I've lost, I've put myself over the top of my numbers now and I've lost, I'm so bored, I've lost count. There we go, seven continue sweeping literally hundreds of years of history into a huge overlapping chronology um, about, the, about the way things go. So I'll have to stay close to the screen there. So 
Tiglath-Pileser III began a group of conquerors, and those conquerors moved the Assyrian domination into Palestine. Shalmaneser V um, began the deportation of the people of Samaria, and Sagron II uh, completed the deportation of the people of Samaria. This is the, the, the one nugget of interest that might be in this story, because why do the Jews in the New Testament hate the Samaritans? They hate them because this happened, because these two rulers emptied the, the, the place and filled it with their own people. And therefore, the Samaritans are always the mugbloods of, of the Bible. They're always the people who are mixed race. And of course, because Israel is xenophobic, only, only the anointed Israel is, is truly God's children. They are deeply suspicious of the Samaritans because this had happened. Sennacherib then moves in further south and tries to attack Judah when Hezekiah, is, Hezekiah who's Josiah's father, is the king. Um, and, and, and famously... Um, he doesn't actually succeed. Esarhaddon carried on through and led the campaigns into Egypt. So just as it seems like it's all going fairly smoothly, then you make it all twisty turny and you see, oh, Esarhaddon's son, Ashurbanipal, ruled much of Upper Egypt from Thebes. But at the decline of his kingdom, the, the decline of Assyria followed soon. Nineveh, that book that, where, where Jonah goes to prophesy, and the people are saved. Well, they're, not, they're only saved for a short time because in 612 BC, the capital is destroyed. Assyria's army is completely defeated at the Battle of Haran in 609 BC. And what's left of them, they move to Chalchemish. They move up to the kind of dividing line uh, as a sort of a fortress place um, and stay diminished there. Then you go back and say, well, why did that happen? You say, well, oh, sorry, I forgot to tell you all along. Obviously, there must have been a reason why the Syrian Empire went into decline. Of course, it went into decline because of the arrival of the Neo-Babylonian Empire. It's called the Neo-Babylonian Empire because it's the second one of these empires. This one has got Merodach Baladadan, who was a Chaldean. Don't forget that Abraham came from the Ur of the Chaldeans. So, that, so Israel draws its, its ethnic heritage from here. He's also Nebuchadnezzar's grandfather, and he famously sent some ambassadors to Hezekiah when he heard that Hezekiah was ill. Um, and then we see the story uh, here in, here in uh, I think it's, it's one kings, two kings. It's, one, it's going to be one of the kings. Let's just say it's two kings. We hear the story. Uh, there he is. At the time, Merak son of Balalah, sent Hezekiah letters and a gift because he heard he was ill. And Hezekiah was, was happy to show him, show these people, these envoys from a far off land, all the stuff in the, in the kingdom. And then Isaiah, notice how Isaiah is not just a prophet, but a political commentator. He comes to the king and he says, what did you show them? And he said, well, I showed them everything. And he said, well, listen, you know they were spies, right? You know they're sorting out how they're going to invade. And Hezekiah hadn't, got, hadn't really got that at all. So... Um, in October 626, Nebuchadnezzar's dad, Nabaraplasa, defeated the Assyrians outside of Babylon. And in 616, he expanded his kingdom. He joined with the Medes from the north and he came in and he, just, and he destroyed Nineveh. It was all good stuff. Then you realize they haven't mentioned Judah or Israel in ages, so you better mention them again. What happens to them in the middle of all of this? Well, actually, because Assyria fell and because Babylon arose, then Judah under King Josiah, the last good king, actually... Um, existed as an autonomous state. It became a free state, very briefly became a free state. And that, that might coincide with the notion that Josiah was a good king. If your theology works like that, it might not. Number 11, then get back to adding some more arrows in your map because it's all very complicated. Because Egypt, seeing the, uh, the ascendancy of Babylon, 
decided to expand its presence into Palestine and they joined with what was left with Assyria and they were going to join forces and, and put, push back the Babylonian horde. And Judah, seeing that this would happen and knowing that Egypt would drive its army straight through Judah and would probably not be very peaceful in doing so, went out to fight um, in order to stop that from happening. And of course, they were defeated. And we see there in two kings, the death of Josiah, the story of the of the end of his the end of his reign, as again the superpower starts mopping up the reality, and the kingdom does not have enough integrity to stand. Number two, I've always let the war rumble on, and then summarize it with spectacularly little in the way of detail. So the Assyrians, even with Egypt's help, lost that battle with Babylon. They disappeared as a power in the world. Egypt retreated to Carchemish, the dividing line between Egypt and Babylonia, but they maintained their rule in Judah. They stayed, they stayed in charge of the people that Habakkuk cares about. 13, finally, in order to save yourself from boring everyone, introduce a character people remember the name of. So 605 BC, Nebuchadnezzar, everyone remembers him, manages to defeat the Egyptians finally at Carchemish. He goes across the beachhead, the place where there have always been, or the Assyrians were stopped before and where he was stopped momentarily. He goes in uh, and he manages to win a decisive battle. And Judah's king, who's Jehoiakim, who's not necessarily a particularly good king at this point, changes his loyalty between Egypt and moves to become loyal to the Babylonians. So he becomes Nebuchadnezzar's vassal. He, 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 uh, he capitulates to him and sends him tribute. Number 14, drag people exhausted to the end of the history lesson with a bit that at least they recognize from Sunday school. Nebuchadnezzar solidified Babylonian domination. And by doing that, he took hostages and he exported uh, all the best people to be part of his kingdom. And Daniel and his three friends, Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego, were taken as part of the deportation. And then we get the story where we know that it is. And then you have to say, well, where was Habakkuk in the middle of all of this again? Because that's a huge story. Well, Habakkuk is here. Habakkuk is at the end of Assyria and the beginning of Babylon. He's, Israel has fallen, it is gone, it no longer exists, and Judah is on its way to falling, and he is in despair because of that fact, and he is trying to speak God's word into that situation for those who will listen. And we've heard the first two chapters of that in the last two weeks. So somewhere between step 12, where the, where the Babylonians are moving westward, and step 13, where, where Israel tries to join the Babylonians to save its skin, there is Habakkuk, and he's sitting and he's saying things that we have been studying. So actually, <laughs> what does that history lesson tell you, apart from give you the opportunity to maybe go and make a cup of tea? Well, it tells a tale of a very, very small fish on three, the three and a half oceans who consume her. Judah and Israel, the story of the Bible is about a very tiny strip of land. It's about a very small amount of people. It's about a almost insignificant people, except, 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 except that they believe themselves to be the torch bearers of the one true God. And in the middle of the, the, the crucible, the, the absolute firebrand of the Egyptian uh, empire, which lasted from 3000 BC to 332 BC, in the middle of the overwhelming tsunami of the Assyrian Empire, who came in and devastated everyone from 2500 BC to 609 BC, in the middle of the rise of the Babylonian Empire, who were so ruthless and who were so oppressive, and in the middle, actually, of part of the rise of the Medo-Persian Empire, who come in late in the day. There she sits. She sits in the middle of all of this, and Habakkuk, needs to comment on the one true God in the middle of 
this line of hell. You join these nations together and what happens because they avoid the desert is that they all drive their tanks straight down the high street in Jerusalem. Every time, all day, every day. The dominant factor, the dominant identity for this little fish, this little nation being swamped by these you know, oceans of war is that for 500 years they can talk about nothing except war because it is their defining context. It is who they are and they can talk about nothing except being overwhelmed, except being oppressed, except being, being hard set on every, every side. They can talk about themselves as being wretched. They can talk about themselves as living in the petrifying fear of the end of all things. And into that, they're expected to be the torchbearers of the reality of God. Israel and Judah are defined in the crucible of the geopolitical upheaval on all sides. They're part of the legacy of the failing superpower of Egypt. Egypt's history is way bigger than theirs. They're part of the, the, the fall of Israel to the hands of Assyria, such a vastly superior nation, it just overwhelms them, doesn't even think about them, really. A few mentions in their history books, nothing. The fall of Judah to Babylon, same deal. And whilst the Medes and the Persians arise for a short time, there sits our Old Testament. There sits our prophets. And in the middle of this, there sits Habakkuk. And Habakkuk writes his few thoughts about who God is and how it is all working. Right. Why am I telling you this? Why am I telling you this ancient, ancient, ancient history when it is, and I would agree to, it is so boring, so passé, so old-fashioned, old so why are we keeping these stories alive? Well, we're keeping these stories alive because the, the history of the Bible and the history bit of the Bible is never-ending. It hasn't stopped. From 1600 to 1945, there was another empire who wanted to dominate the world. It was called the British Empire, and you might have different views about the reality of that, depending on whether you're sitting in the middle of Black History Month or whether you're sitting uh, in, a, in, a, in a comfortable place where you think Britain is wonderful. What would Habakkuk have said to that empire and all of the atrocities that it, that it committed in the name of its monarchs? You have plundered many nations, and the people who are left will plunder you. They will call a song of revenge over the British Empire. The Austro-Hungarian Empire, the largest single empire ever seen in mainland Europe, just before the dawn of the First World War. What would Habakkuk have said about it? Woe to him who builds a city with bloodshed. The idea that war is the machine that keeps Europe safe was, of course, a lie. We learned it again some short time later when the Nazis, or when the, when the, when the Germans dominated most of Europe. What would Habakkuk have said? To them, what to you who shed human blood? You have destroyed cities and everyone in them. We know the stories, and the stories are contemporary. They're recent. The USSR 1922 to 1991, very different kettle of fish. If you've been there, you'll know this. What would Habakkuk have be uh, have a say to them? Woe to him who builds a city with bloodshed and who establishes a town by injustice. The American Empire, 1955 to present day. And this one's a wild card because obviously this is a cultural empire. This is this is a, this is driven driven by absorbing everyone else into your culture rather than by fighting them militarily. Woe to him who builds his house by unjust game. No one really believes that America is a fair place, uh, more so today than at any other. 
And the China Empire, 1949 to the present day, what are we going to say about them that, that we know to be true? Because we, so, we know so little, and those of, you be, those of you who've been there will know this. But uh, the Lord Almighty has determined that the people's labour is only fuel for the fire, for the nations exhaust themselves for nothing. And then this is the one that bothers me the most, and I think it should bother you too. This is the empire of Ares, Ares, the god of war. Just look at it. Just look at it. The bigger the circle, the longer the time the war has been running. Look at our world. Look at our world and see how this is still the story. This is still happening. This is not ancient history. This is not just the, the, the tales of, of um, you know, boys' own books with you know, uh, exotic princes and, and, and battles on horses and bows and arrows. This is still the story. This is still happening. We are still in the middle of this. And Habakkuk wants to say that violence and strife and conflict, it's everywhere. It's everywhere. It's all around me at all times. It's everywhere. I cannot escape this. Even if I live in Solihull, if I have a brain I cannot escape this idea that Habakkuk's complaint is contemporary. It still stands. How long, O oh Lord, must I call for help, but you don't listen or cry out to you violence, but you don't save? Why do you make me look at injustice? Why do you tolerate wrongdoing? Destruction and violence are before me. There is strife and conflict with their bounds. And Habakkuk's world is unchanged. Here, the arrogant are never at rest because he is greedy as the grave. He's like death. He's never satisfied. He gathers to himself all the nations and he takes captives of all the peoples. Story continues. The story keeps on going. We will not give up on this till we get to Habakkuk 3. Because Habakkuk 3 sets the stage, not for yet more history, Habakkuk 3 says, the Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth be silent before him and sets the stage for a song. This is a bizarre thing. Habakkuk 3 ends as a song. It doesn't end as history. It doesn't end as politics. It doesn't end as rationality. It doesn't end as theology. It doesn't end as any of those things. It doesn't end intellectually. It ends with a song, when Habakkuk comes to the end of his tether, when the stories of the world are exhaust him, he gives way to song. When the, the history of the raging of the oceans continues to overwhelm, he gives way to a song. And he decides instead that he's going to sing a song. So here's the second dangerous bit. I was looking for a metaphor this morning for what I mean by what I'm about to do. I would point you in the direction of Edith, those of you who could see her on your screen. When Joe said, um, let's sing, Edith instinctively reached for a tambourine. And, and that is what we need to do when we're faced with literature like this. this. This is what we need to be. We need to be the people who do not try and deconstruct God's songbook. We need to be the people who try and reach for a tambourine and in with all that we are, join in. So here's the risk. I'm, gonna, I'm not going to sing this because obviously that would be awful. And, all, and also it's not in Hebrew. And also I don't know the chord 
changes and and but but being no doubt this is a song so i'm going to sing it with you and we're going to react to it like edith reaching for the tambourine all we're going to do is i have no idea roughly what i'm going to say here i'm going to sing the song and we are going to own both the story and the song of god together because that's what habakkuk wanted us to do lord i have heard of your fame I stand in awe of your deeds, O Lord. Renew them in our day and make them known in our time. But in wrath, remember mercy. Because God came from Taman, the Holy One from Mount Paran. His glory covered the heavens and his praise filled the earth. And his splendor was like the sunrise and rays flashed from his hand where his power was hidden. Plague went before him. Pestilence followed in his steps. He stood and shook the earth. He looked and he made the nations tremble. What kind of song does Habakkuk reach for? Does he reach for um, a, a political song? No, he reaches for the song of Job. He reaches for the most ancient idea of God. Where are you, the absent God? Because I remember. I remember what I was told. And I want to hear you again. I want to see you again. But the God he wants to come is not the God who will sort out his little problems. The God he wants to come is the God of the universe to turn up. The God of the universe to be here because the song he wants to sing subsequently is not a song of his own, not a song of his people, not a song of his reality, but a song of God's reality, a song of God's salvation. The people who followed the history from what Habakkuk was saying wrote Psalm 137, by the rivers of Babylon, we wept, we hung up our hearts, we refused to sing the Lord's song because we were devastated that we were in a strange land and we could not be near to our God. And then they prayed, may the one who dashes your baby's heads against the rocks be blessed. The history song was a song of despair and yet further violence and yet more revenge because they needed to see that their God was small. But the song that Habakkuk's singing is a personal song. It is much more like Psalm 40. Let me read some of that song for you. I waited patiently for the Lord. He turned to me and he heard my cry. He lifted me out of the slimy pit, out of the mud and the mire. He set my feet on a rock and he gave me a firm place to stand. He put a new song in my mouth. A hymn of praise to our God and many will see and fear and put their trust in the Lord. Later on, do not withhold your mercy from me. O Lord, may your love and your truth always protect me for troubles without number surround me and my sins have overtaken me and I cannot see they are more than the hairs on my head and my heart fails within me. Be pleased, O Lord, to save me. O Lord, come quickly to help me. That's the kind of song that Habakkuk wants to write here. This is the kind of song when he says, Sun and moon stand still in the heavens at the glint of your flying arrows, at the lightning of your flashing spear. In wrath you strode through the earth. In anger you thrust these nations that have done so much devastation over so long. You thrust them, O God. You came out to deliver your people, to save your anointed one. You crushed the leader of the land of wickedness and you stripped him from head to foot and with his own spear you pierced his head when his warriors stormed out to scatter. Habakkuk wants to talk about a bigger salvation. He wants to talk about a bigger God. He wants to talk about a bigger victory. He wants to diminish the power of these authorities, of these, of these nations, of all this stuff that is going on. And he wants to say, my God is bigger. My God is more than that. My God is the God of salvation. And he wants to hint, as he said at the beginning, in your anger, remember mercy, that mercy is going to become a person. Mercy is going to become God incarnate. Mercy is going to arrive. The one who came from God, full of grace and truth, full of grace, mercy and truth. The one who is the one who saves. And he tries to talk about how that is going to create, that song is going to create the meaning of this story. 
that he will come. And he does it in a peculiar way. Because he's, when he stops and thinks about the way that salvation is going to come, when he stops and thinks about this God of Job, this God of the universe, and how he is going to dominate the earth and make, make a nonsense of everything that has been done. I heard and my heart pounded and my lips quivered at the sound and decay crept into my bones and my legs trembled. Yet, Psalm 40, I will wait patiently. I waited patiently. I will wait patiently for the day of calamity to come upon the nation who is invading us. Though the fig tree does not bud and there are no grapes on the vines, though the olive crop fails and the fields produce no food, there are no sheep in the pen and no cattle in the stalls. Yet I will rejoice in, I will rejoice and be joyful in God, my Savior, in his song, the defeat of the ultimate enemy is what is being sung. And the ultimate enemy is the one who overwhelms men, who stirs up the sea and who creates the tsunami of war. And that ultimate enemy is going to be defeated, according to Habakkuk, and he's going to be defeated using two verbs. He's going to be defeated by being crushed, which is in the original song, in the first song of the Bible. The Bible opens with a song. The Bible opens with a seven-verse long, beautiful cantana about who God is. And in, that, in the, the, the corollary of that song, we see the Satan being cursed. And, and the Satan is told, you strike his heel all you want. He will crush your head. And that is the verb. That's what happens here. Crush him, says Habakkuk. Do away with this. And also the, the language of threshing and what we see in Jesus in the Revelation is very uncomfortable because he's seen as the threshing sledge of God. He's seen as the one who does what? Who causes the nations to stand and tremble. He's the one who brings the justice of God finally. And yet what happens in Habakkuk is what happens at the crucifixion. Because mercy comes, victory arrives, and it arrives in a context of overwhelming defeat. We are still invaded. The salvation hasn't arrived. There are no grapes on the vines. There are, the olive crops are failing. The fields produce no food. There are no sheep in the pen. There are no cattle in the stalls. And yet I need to rejoice in God, my Savior. Why? Because he saves. Because that's who he is. And that's what he does. And I will sing this song because that's what's going to happen. I don't care what's going on in the world. That is what is going to happen. My God saves. And he saves me personally. And he saves me by becoming the person who at the crucifixion, his followers would say, there are no grapes on the vine anymore. There are no figs in the trees. There, are, there is no food in, this, in the fields. The, the, all of the prosperity has gone. My life is drained of everything. And God dares to say that is, a, that is how salvation will come. And Habakkuk whispers it to us in the beautiful, beautiful language of despair. How do we sing this song? As Christians, how do we sing this song? What are we going to do to sing this to each other? We'll sing it over our world. Though it is terrorised, we will sing this. We'll sing it over ourselves. When I cannot find God and I'm in the darkest of despair, I, I know, I know my Redeemer lives. And I will sing it and I will not lose heart and I will not go down to the grave without honouring his name. And we'll sing it over the other. All the history and stuff is gone, and when the person in, in your life who's important to you is at their end, and who has despair as a harvest, no grapes on the vine, no figs in the tree, no, nothing 
to be happy about, nothing to understand, nothing to feel, you will tell them, as the voice of God, their Redeemer lives. You will be the last verse of Habakkuk's song, Incarnate. The sovereign Lord is my strength. He makes my feet like the feet of a deer. He enables me to go on the heights. And you'll take everyone you meet who's in any kind of distress and you will reach for your tambourine and you will sing that song with them. Because that is the integrity of who God is, whatever is going on. We are the singers of these songs. This is our job. These are not political. These are not historical. These are not rational. These are, these are not the things of intellect. These are the very things of the soul. And Habakkuk can do nothing but end his prophecy because he knows what is going to go on. He knows how the nations will rage and rage on they will. And he just says, my God saves. My God saves. I will be at peace. My God saves. This is the Christian message. That's why Habakkuk still matters. That's why all of it still matters. I hope that's been okay to look at it in those different odd angles. But sometimes when the purpose of a song is that it must be sung, not that it must be understood. So I want to bless you going into your week that you are the singer of God's songs. That is who you are. That's what you're for. Amen.